Hi, everybody. Good morning. My name is Dave, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, and like he said, because the program works, I've been sober since August 24th of 1980. And uh, I don't say that to impress you, but sometimes it impresses the hell out of me. You know? And uh, I was sitting here, and I was looking out at everybody. And, uh, you know, when I feel this way, i got to say this. I was just overcome by a feeling of gratitude for what this program's done for me. You know, it's just absolutely unbelievable. Uh, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we make some pretty extravagant promises, you know, that life will take on new meaning. Life will mean something at last. And, you know, for a drunk like I was and where I came from, to have that promise realized and see that come true is an amazing thing. And if you're new, I hope you keep coming back, and I hope you stay until a miracle happens. Just don't. You know, I tell the people I sponsor, I say, surrender and don't ever give up. You know, just, just, you know, surrender to God's will and keep coming back and don't ever stop. You know, the only losers in AA are the people who quit trying. So uh, I also want to thank Burns and the committee. And uh, I know that we had a, I guess maybe I need to thank President Clinton. I don't know, because uh, I was on the phone with people in Dallas last night back at midnight. Uh, they're going, uh-oh, uh-oh, they're on strike. Oh, no. And I'm like, okay, well, hello, Louisville. I was joking with people about applying for work here. And... Uh, but it looks like uh, the American Airlines strike is off, so we're all going to get back home. But I do have to say this. This is a very warm, nice AA area. I mean, y'all have been extraordinarily kind. Everybody stuck out their hand. You've smiled. Uh, it's really nice. I've really enjoyed this. So uh, let me start off by telling you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. Um, before I get into this, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm an alcoholic because I drank alcohol. Nobody made me an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because I took every drink I took. But there are some things that, that figure into that. One of the things that's part of my story, I, uh, I was born to a lady, uh, and I was her fourth child. And all the information I'm about to give you, I found out after I'd been sober some time in Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not know this for a long time. Uh, I knew that I was adopted. I was adopted when I was... Uh, just real young out of an orphanage in Oklahoma City. And uh, I don't have any memory of that. But after I got sober, I was able to go up to Oklahoma and I was able to find out about my natural family. And here's what I found out. My mother uh, had had a child when she was 18 and she was still living at home and she gave it up for adoption. And then she got married to a man and uh, he was an alcoholic. And so was she, as it turns out. And uh, they had a marriage, and it lasted for a few years. She got divorced. She lost custody of the kids. And then she got pregnant later on, and she had me, and I was her fourth child. And she gave me up for adoption. And one of the reasons why I mention that is because I was adopted by two people who don't drink at all. There is no drinking on either side of my adopted family as far back as I can find. And I have looked. Now, if there, there may be an alcoholic hiding somewhere, and if there is, they covered him up really well, or her. But I have found no signs of alcoholism. And my parents, you know, my parents gave me the best upbringing they could. I mean, these are people that really wanted to have kids, okay? I was, uh, when I was a kid, I was digging around in my uh, grandparents' attic, and I found this board that uh, was from my mother's uh, elementary school days, and it had my name and my brother's name written on it. And I said, how could... You know, how could this be? And I asked my mother, and she said, well, I knew what y'all's names were going to be before I ever had you. I had all my kids named, you know. And so, I mean, these are two people that wanted to have kids and couldn't. And so they they had some ideas. They thought long and hard about how to raise kids. My mother was an elementary school teacher. Uh, when I was the first child I got, when I came along, she quit school and stayed at home and, you know, taught me. I mean, I knew how to read before I got to the first grade. And uh, they just they wanted us to have the best upbringing they could. 
and they had a lot of really good ideas about raising kids, and the ideas made sense, except they didn't know anything about alcoholism. And here's one of the ideas. And, and this, I guess this idea makes really good sense. I can't see any problem with logic because alcoholism is not a logical disease. But uh, one of the ideas was this, and that is if a child is never exposed to something while he's being brought up, then when he gets older and he has a, actually a chance to make a choice in his life, what's he, what am I going to do with my life? And he'll look, he'll say, well, you know, my people don't do that. Okay, this is not a choice. My people don't do that. And so... Um, I would choose not to drink. That's what, that's, that was their intention. I, there was no drinking at family gatherings. Uh, now, I will tell you this. There was alcohol in the hello. There was alcohol in the house. And uh, from an early age, I knew where that alcohol was, and I kept an eye on it, because it bothered me that it was there and nobody was drinking it. Um, <laughs> it was on the top shelf of the linen closet. When they were gone... I could take a chair and pull it up and use the shelves of the linen closet and pull myself up there and hang and take a look at it. And I was fascinated by it. My father had bottles in there that had the PX label from World War II. Okay, it said purchase PX 1945. Big bottles, little bottles, green bottles, round bottles. Places, pictures, people on the bottles, the most exotic, wonderful stuff I'd ever seen, and it bothered me like you wouldn't believe that they weren't drinking it. And... <clears throat> I, uh, I asked my father a couple of times. Uh, I said, uh, "Are y'all? I said, you know, kid, we're going to have company tonight." And I said, "Oh, are you going to drink some of that whiskey?" No. Okay. I said, "Dad, when are you going to drink the whiskey?" We don't drink whiskey, and I, and my father wasn't long on explanations. You know, he just we don't drink whiskey. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I. I never said, why do you have it? Maybe I said, why do you have it? I don't remember. Maybe he told me, but it wasn't a satisfactory answer to me. And then, I tell you, I found out why he had some of that up there. My father was going on a business trip once, and I was in his room, and he he was a sales manager for a large company, and uh, so he was always on the road. And he was packing a suitcase to go out of town, and uh, he took a hip flask out, and he went and got one of those whiskey bottles out of the linen closet in a little funnel, and he transferred some of that in there, and I thought, okay, I got it. Okay, I know what's going on. So I shut the door to, to the bedroom, and I said, Dad, I know what's happening. I said, you're going out of town. I'm like eight or nine years old. I said, you drink this while you're out of town, don't you? Because you don't want Mom to see. And uh, he said, no, I don't. And I thought, what? You know, it's like, come on. You know, I mean, you're taking the whiskey, and you're not going to drink it. But I found out later, he took me on a business trip with him, and I found out what he did with the whiskey. And... Uh, you know, I thought it was a dirty, rotten trick. I didn't understand at the time, but after I got sober, we talked about it. My, uh, my father would go to a different city, and he would need to hire a salesman for that city, so he'd call the employment agencies, and he'd say, I'm with so-and-so, I'm with this company. You know, I'd like you to send, you know, prospects by. I'll be interviewing this hotel, you know, from these hours. And so the guys would come by to interview for the job, and if my father thought he had a likely-looking candidate for the job, He'd go to his suitcase and he'd take the hip flask out and he'd take two of those little hotel glasses and he'd set them there. And he'd pour a little bit of whiskey in each one and he'd push it across to the guy and he'd say, well, let's have a drink. And if the man took the drink and asked for another one, he didn't get the job because my father was trying to find the alcoholics. And I thought, ooh, that's low. Ooh. (laughs) What a rotten trick. But it worked. Except for one guy. And my father is still baffled. This man was the best salesman my father ever hired. 
He still talks about him to this day. And more than that, he liked him. Okay? He liked this guy. He, he moved him to Dallas so he could be close. And we were always going over to his house. I remember going over to this man's house. He was outgoing. He was funny. Uh, you just liked being around him. And, uh, you know, he was always drinking. And there, but he'd fix my parents a drink and they'd set it on the counter. And literally, I would watch it. You know, they never touched the drink. Okay? And, uh, you know, my dad just really, really liked this guy. Well, he was one of us. Okay, and my dad said, well, he's asked me, he said, how come he didn't take the drink? And see, what I know is sometimes if that's all there is, that's not enough to even get started. Okay, you know, I mean, it's like, why bother? I mean, that's not even, that would just whet my appetite. So um, the guy apparently passed the alcoholism test, but in true alcoholic fashion later on, what he did was he embezzled a bunch of money and ran off with the secretary and left his wife and kids. You know, you know, did the usual alcoholic thing. And... Uh, my father's still baffled by that, um, but I understood it. I just laughed. You know, I said, Dad, you don't get it, do you? And he says, no, I don't. And he's like going, why, why, why? And I said, ah, never mind. But uh, so there wasn't any drinking in the house. You know, uh, I wasn't exposed to drinking. And, you know, what this did for me was when I began to drink alcoholically, I did not know what was happening to me. I truly had never been around people who drank. I was not exposed to drinking. I knew there were neighbors down the street, you know, who drank, and I knew there were people over here that were drinking, but I just didn't know anything about it. I had never seen people passed out drunk. I really was kind of led a sheltered life. Um, but let me go back and tell you why that was important, because my father, <clears throat> later on, when my drinking really took off, uh, let me just tell you all some little pictures of what my drinking was like. Rather than giving you a blow-by-blow, day-by-day description of my drinking career, let me just give you some little snapshots of what it was like. It'll probably sum it up. You know, both my parents have their college degrees. And, uh, you know, my, my father, I think, is an extraordinary man. He, uh, I was brought up to believe certain things. And I was more than that. My father tried to pass along his code of living to me that his father passed on to him. My father grew up real poor on a dirt farm in Oklahoma, and he had six brothers. And my, my grandfather didn't know how to read or write, and all of my six uncles uh, all educated themselves, uh, well, except one or two, but most of them went to college. Um, you know, they all made something out of themselves. And uh, my father, I used to hear things growing up like this, okay? A man does what a man needs to do. If you make a mistake, you realize it, you pick yourself up by the seat of the pants, you dust yourself off, and you go on. If you've got a problem, you recognize it, you do the right thing, okay? And this is the kind of stuff I heard. And that's a, that makes sense, except it doesn't work for alcoholism, okay? It doesn't work for drinking. And I didn't know why it didn't work for drinking. And my father didn't know why it didn't work for drinking. Because, you know, we'd have those uh, conferences in the early days of it getting bad. And I call it the backyard conference, where you go out and you sit with your father in the backyard cross-legged and... You know, because we're going away because we don't want anybody to hear. We'd sit down on the grass and we'd pluck blades of grass and tear it like that. You know, you just sit there and you got your head down. Because generally what it was was I needed a lot of money or I needed something. And uh, he'd say, son, he'd say, you know, you got a drinking problem. I'd say, yeah, Dad, I do. He'd say, well, good. Then you know what you need to do, don't you? I'd say, yeah. And he'd say, okay, good. To him, it was a done deal. The issue was settled. That was it. You got a problem. You know what you need to do. Now go do it. So when I turned up drunk again, he didn't know what was wrong. To tell you the truth, I didn't either. I 
couldn't. My, I was, you know, the big book talks about being baffled, and I was baffled. You know, why isn't this working? Why, why, why is this happening to me? I could not understand it. You know, there was a company Christmas party. Now, I'm, I'm way up here now at the end of my drinking. My wife has left at this point. Uh, I got married when I was young. I got married when I was 19. And, uh, you know, we had a, we had a little girl in less than the normal, a lot of time that you would, you know, expect. And I think you know what I'm trying to say. And, uh, <clears throat> but you know, it was okay. I got a good job. Uh, my wife had a good job. Uh, you know, things were working out. And what happened was, I can still remember this. She came in one day and she said, I love you. I always have and I probably always will. But my daughter and I deserve better to sit here and watch you kill yourself and we're leaving. She, once she made her mind up, she was gone. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, good. You know, I got married way too young. You know, good. And, uh, you know, but to tell you the truth, what that did was that absolutely devastated me. And I'll tell you why. You know, it's like these funny little things that alcoholics have. When I was a little kid, now, being adopted, I knew that ever since I could early remember, okay? I mean, my parents told me when I think I was six years old. And... Uh, they didn't do anything wrong. They did it exactly like you're supposed to. Now, I'm the one that kind of went weird with it. But, you know, they told me that. But I could remember thinking, see, nobody else was adopted because I went through my entire, I started naming it. Is this kid adopted? And they said no. And we went through everybody I knew on the face of the earth, and there were no other adopted kids that I knew of. And, uh, and I thought about it, and I thought, well, it's not a bad thing, you know. I mean, it was like, because it was, it was, I was so young, it was all I knew. And I grew up knowing that. And, uh. You know, and they made it, you know, it's like, well, your mother couldn't raise you, and she wanted you to have really good care, so we got you so we could give you the care she could. And, you know, and I thought, okay, fine, I'll believe that. Um, but I made a promise to myself uh, when I was a kid, and I thought, well, you know, there, there are some drawbacks to this. And I told myself, you know, I, that I would never do anything to allow a child that I had to be raised by anything other than both of its parents. That was a solemn promise I made to myself when I was a little kid, and I never told a soul on the face of the earth that. You know, it was just something I said. You know, it's like, I don't know what my natural mother's situation was, but I said, that's not going to happen to me, because I'm not going to see that happen. And then I watched my daughter taken away. And then later on, I was, uh, right after we got divorced, uh, my ex-wife called me on the phone and she said, listen, I've got to do some shopping. I'd like to, uh, would you like to see your daughter for a little while? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And uh, she said, I'm going to drop her off for a few hours and then I'll come by and pick her up. So they brought my daughter, who was five years old at the time, by this nasty little one-bedroom efficiency apartment I was living in. It was just all one big room, you know. And, uh, you know, I mean, she was five years old and she came in the door with her little book, you know, and she had her doll and her coloring books in it, and she's, hi, Daddy, you know, and she jumped on the bed, and she starts coloring me pictures, and said, here, I did this for you, and I said, oh, that's great, you know, and she just keeps drawing, and then I did what I did every night at 5 o'clock when I got home, and that is, I took a great big iced tea glass, and I filled it to the top with bourbon and put a couple of ice cubes in it and turned on the TV and sat there and stared at it, and she'd talk to me, and I'd say something, you know, and then, you know, that's what I did every single night. The next thing I was aware of uh, was my apartment was full of people. They were all talking at once, and I looked up, and my daughter was walking out the door saying, Bye, Daddy, and, and my maintenance man was in there. The next-door neighbor was in there. Some people from down the way were in there, and there's a lot of people in this little efficiency apartment. They're all standing there, and I jump up out of this chair, and my heart's pounding, and I go, What's going on? What's going on? You know, 
There's a man in Dallas named Albert who talks about the sound of alcoholism. And I don't remember the sound of alcoholism, but I call it the look of alcoholism. And it's my alcoholism reflected in someone else's expression. You know, when you when when I jumped up and I looked into those people's faces and I saw the disgust, I didn't know what I'd done, but I recognized that look. You know, and the, it was it went from pity to disgust to anger. And my ex-wife was so angry, and she said, I'll call you and tell you what you've done. And all of a sudden, everybody walked out. But as they walked out, they were shaking their heads, looking at me. And I didn't know what had happened. My heart was pounding. I was sitting there, and I just looked around, and stuff was, my apartment was disorganized. Everything was moved, and I didn't know what had happened. And the phone rang, and here's what, she told me what had happened. And she said that she had come over there, and I had drank. And that night, I just passed right out, a couple of, couple of those drinks. And my head went forward, and I was unconscious. And she came back. And my daughter was too small to get to the deadbolt lock, and she couldn't open it. My wife stood outside through that double window and looked at me and her daughter and saw me passed out with my mouth open in the chair. And she started getting hysterical, and my wife started screaming outside because she was scared for her daughter. And so this crowd gathered, and they came, and they forced my window off the hinges, and they all crawled in through my window. And that's why everybody came inside. And she told me that, and it scared me to death, just absolutely scared me to death. And she said, you know, Buster, you've lost the right to see your child. This is it. You know, I can't even, you cannot be alone with her anymore. That's it. And, you know, I didn't argue with her. I said, yeah, yeah, I understand. I said, I think, you know, I said, I'm going to quit drinking. And she said, well, you know, okay, good, but that's not going to change this. And I said, no, I understand that. And I tell you, I sat there and I thought about it and you know, I routinely fell asleep with cigarettes, in, or fell asleep, excuse me, passed out with cigarettes in my hand when I was drinking. You know, I mean, the, thank God this apartment complex had one of those carpets that melts, okay, before it burns. Because I had this big brown Lazy Boy recliner. It took about half the apartment. It was one of those oversized big chairs you could live in it. And, uh, you know, the carpet all around it was full of cigarette burns, you know, where I'd just, you know, pass out, drop a cigarette. And, and I thought, you know... She couldn't get out of here. She was so small, and she could have burned to death, and she'd have been asking me for help, and I couldn't have done a damn thing. And it scared me. I was really scared, and I thought, you know, David, this has gone too far. You've got to do something. So what I did was I resolved. I did I, I, I did the flush and pour. I flushed it, and I poured it out. Got rid of everything I had in there. And I called some people that had been my friends. You know, they had been my friends. Uh, you know, I had friends that I'd had since growing up. Uh, people that I went to elementary and junior high school with. And, uh, you know, but, but I hadn't been able to go over to their houses. There was one friend in particular. He was my best friend. And about a year prior to that, I'd gone over to his house. And it was his wife's birthday party. And all I remember was <clears throat> going over there, walking in the door and being in a great mood. And then, the, and then I'm home, you know, lost the evening. But the phone's ringing the next morning. And uh, it's him. And, you know, if you're alcoholic, you may know what I'm talking about. When, when I answered the phone... And I said, hello. And he said, Dave, he said, Dave, why did you do it? Now, when he said that, I had no earthly idea what he was talking about. You know, I had no idea. So, and that, that was not uncommon for people to call and ask me why I did something, and I had no idea what had happened. So my heart would start pounding, and I'd try and bluff my way through it. Because if you admit that you don't know what happened, then you're insane. Okay? And I didn't want anybody to know I was insane, so I kind of bluffed my way through the conversation, hoping that he'd give me a little information so I could figure out what it was that I did and try and put the pieces together. So I kind of said, oh, well, you know, you know. And he said, he said, my wife cried for an hour after you left. And I'm like, uh, 
yeah, well, um, you know, and I, it's like, because I couldn't admit, I, did, I had no idea what I'd done. I was scared and terrified and afraid, you know, because, you know, I couldn't tell him, I don't know what I did. I don't know what happened. And he said, you know, Dave, you're a nice guy. He said, but I just can't have you around anymore. So you just don't come over anymore. So, you know, I called him that night and I told him I was through drinking. And he said, good, that's good. You need to quit, Dave. We've all been worried about you for a long time. So the next morning, I got up and I remembered what had happened the night before. And I looked at all those empties sitting on the counter and I went, man, man, I have got to do something about this. I have got to get this under control. I went to work and I got all caught up in work and uh, got real busy there. And then about four o'clock in the afternoon, I started to get that knot, that gnawing, you know, that now I did not drink during the day. I found out after I got sober that they were so convinced I was drinking during the day. There were a couple of supervisors whose job it was was to catch me drinking because I drank so much the night before. I just had this bourbon vapor cloud around me and uh, they were trying to catch me. But I really wasn't drinking during the day. I was taking a lot of Valium. You know, uh, that was how I kept the shakes down. You know, you know how guys at, uh, in Texas, a lot of people, you know, dip Copenhagen and they carry that can in their back pocket and it wears that ring around, you know, in, in your jeans. And I had a ring like that from that Valium prescription pill bottle I carried in my front pocket. You know, it just kind of wore it away because I, you know, what they took that away from me in treatment. And I said, oh, no, you don't understand. I'm not. I need that. You know, and we like fought over it, you know. I wasn't taking, I didn't think I needed that stuff because that was how I made it through the day until I could drink. But that next day, about four o'clock in the afternoon, I just remembered one thing and all I could remember was that I didn't have any whiskey at the house. I could remember seeing all the empty bottles sitting on the counter, but I couldn't remember why. And I did, I wrote out the check to the liquor store at work because that way I could put my elbow and prop my arm up because I did not want the man in the liquor store to see my handshake. That was very important that the guys in the liquor store not see me show any signs of alcoholism. So I knew exactly how much it was to the penny with the tax. So I'd write the check out at home or at work. I drove to the liquor store. I gave them the check. And you know, in, in the package stores in Dallas, when you, when you go in and make a big purchase, they want to carry it to your car. And I used to think what they were trying to tell me is they thought I was too much of a drunk to carry my own whiskey to the car. So I'd fight them. You know, I'd stand there and go, no, I can carry it. And they go, no, sir, we'd like to carry it for you. And we'd sit there and we'd pull it back and forth, you know. And, and uh, so I guess I was actually, I've seen a lot of other guys do that. So I guess I was just another drunk. But uh, I took that half gallon and I got home and I saw all those empties sitting on the counter. And I remember going, I wonder why those are empty. I don't remember drinking that much. And I sat down and I was into my second drink when I remembered. And it hit me. I remembered what had happened the night before, and I remembered that I had the strongest resolve I'd ever had in my life to stop drinking, and it had not even entered my mind. It had just, it just flown away. It's like it wasn't even there. And the big book talks about terror, frustration, bewilderment, and despair. And I knew it right then. I knew it. And I thought I was beyond hope. My father, right towards the end there, I, I had a little... A little problem at a company Christmas party. Um, I worked in an office with about 100 women, and, uh, you know, I'd started drinking at 4 because the party started at 8. I was going to be drinking at the party, so I had to lubricate things, you know, to get ready to drink. So I was in pretty good shape when I got there. And I went up to one of the women I worked with and put my arm around her, and her husband, who didn't know who I was, uh, came from across the room in a sudden fashion. And... uh, 
next thing I know, I was looking up at the ceiling, and he was dancing on me. And uh, so they ejected us both from the party for fighting. And this was very embarrassing and humiliating because I hadn't done nothing. And uh, in alcoholic fashion, now this is December, and this is an apartment complex clubhouse. Um, I didn't grab my coat. I went to the, to the table and grabbed my half gallon because, you know, you're not going to drink my booze. And uh, I was very righteous, you know, indignant. And I went out to my car and I sat in the front seat of my car and took a couple of pulls and thought, how could they do this to me? And then I just fell right over. And I came to, and when I came to, the party was over, and it was about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and it was December, and it was extremely cold. And I was shivering, and I couldn't find my car keys. And you know that when you drink a lot and you wake up outside, you know, you've lost all that body heat. I mean, you're really, really cold. And I took a couple more drinks, and uh, that wouldn't, I knew I was going to have to find some place to go. And uh, I didn't know that my car keys were in the coat, which had been left inside. And uh, then I hallucinated somebody I worked with, you know. I, I, I was in front of an apartment entrance, and I saw her upstairs, and I saw her walk in the apartment. I said, I didn't know she lived here. And I got out of the car, and I went up, and I knocked on the door. And uh, when when the guy finally came to the door, he said, no, Sonia doesn't live here. And I thought, well, how could that be? I must, it must have been this one. So I went to all the apartments up there at 3 in the morning in this fourplex and knocked on the door. And they said, no, there is no Sonia here. And I went back, and I sat in my car, and I thought, I wonder how that could have happened. And then I saw her again. I said, oh, she must have stepped out. And she went into that first apartment. That guy just said, no it. So I went back up there, and I knocked on the door again. And uh, the man lost all his Christian charity at that point. And he opened the door and popped me in the nose and threw me down a flight of stairs. He called the cops. Which is, I don't know if he should have popped me in the nose, but he should have called the cops. And they found me laying at the bottom of the staircase. And uh, my, uh, my hand was broken. And uh, my glasses were split in two, and my nose was wide open, and my hand was swelling up. And I was covered with blood, and I was sloppy drunk, and I was slobbering. And, you know, cops don't like us. What a pain. You know, I messed up their squad car. You know, I was a, you know, they handcuffed me and threw me in the back of the car and took me downtown. Now, at this point, I was out of people to call to get out of jail, and there was one person I could still call. Uh, It was my ace in the hole, and that was my father. And so I called him and told him that there had been a big misunderstanding at the company Christmas party and could he come get me. Now, when they called my name out early that Sunday morning, you know, I went and I got my manila envelope and I came around the corner. And I'll never forget it, the walls were that institutional green down there in the old Dallas City Jail and there was a potted plant over in the corner, uh, like a big palm, a plastic one, I'm sure. My father was standing underneath it, kind of in a shadow, and he was looking down at the ground. Because my father had never been to jail before, you know, and uh, this was his oldest son, you know, and he was down there getting him out of jail on a Sunday morning. And when he saw me, he looked at me and he couldn't look at me again. He couldn't, he, he couldn't make eye contact. He couldn't even see me. And I remember we rode down that elevator and uh, he didn't look at me. We walked across the parking lot and he didn't look at me. And uh, we were driving up from downtown. And, uh, you know, Sunday morning, there's not a lot of cars, and the sun's coming up. And he's giving me little sideways glances. And my father is not an emotional man, but his eyes were squinched real shut. And uh, he was trying to hold back the tears, but he couldn't. The tears were like little hypodermic. I'd never forget that they were hitting the front of his glasses like they were coming out of a syringe. They were just, you know, and it was running down his face. And he was like... 
And, you know, the only thing he said, he said, haven't you had enough? And I had no idea what to say to him. I had no idea. I had no idea. I did not know what to do at that point. I had no idea. You know, when I found my natural family, I contacted. Uh, I did a bunch of research, you know, found out who they were. Found out the first person I contacted was a cousin. And uh, he was an attorney. And I contacted him because he was an attorney. And I called him on the phone at work. And I said, you don't know me. I said, but your Aunt Dorothy. And I knew my natural mother had already passed away. I knew that before I started. I just knew that. I think that God was protecting me because I tried in the past. And I think I got to find out about my natural mother through people who loved her rather than actually getting to meet her. And uh, I called my cousin. And I said, you don't know me, but I'm your cousin. Your Aunt Dorothy uh, was my mother, and she gave me up for adoption. And I'd like to get some information about my natural family. And uh, I said, I don't want to upset anybody's life. I don't want to come in and cause a big ruckus. I said, if nothing else, if you just mail me a picture of some people, I'd like to see somebody who looks like me. And he said, wow. He said, that's quite a story. He said, let me check this out, and I'll call you back tomorrow. And uh, he called me back the next day. And he said, Dave, I talked to my Uncle Bob, and uh, he confirmed that Aunt Dorothy had given a child up for adoption. And uh, he said, besides, Dave, he said, this family is so insane, nobody would willingly want to claim to be a part of it. (laughs) And then he said this. He said, Dave, do you by any chance have a problem with drugs or alcohol? (laughs) And I started laughing, and I said, yeah. I've been sober quite a few years in Alcoholics Anonymous. Was my mother an alcoholic? And he let out a sigh, and he said, David, he said, drugs and alcohol have destroyed this family. And we needed to know if you were really one of us or not. And he said, Uncle Bob and I decided if you said no, we'd know you were lying. And he meant that, too. They really did. And they had a legitimate reason. The family had a bunch of property, and there was about to be a a disbursement of this to the heirs from the grandmother's estate. And I showed up, and they thought, man, this guy's coming trying to claim some of this inheritance money, and we want to know if he's really one of us or not. And so that was the test, if he's an alcoholic. And then my cousin proceeded to tell me about my family. Um, of my natural uncles, I have one uncle that's sober, uh, I guess, 30 years now in Alcoholics Anonymous in Georgia. I've spoken to him on the phone. My cousin's father, uh, that uncle, uh, died of an alcoholic hemorrhage when he was very young. Uh, I've been to the cemetery, and the family didn't even give him a, a marked gravestone. There's just a blank marker there. I've got one uncle who um, last time he was seen was he came off a skid row in Oklahoma City and he showed up on his mother's doorstep and they called the police and had him taken away and I think that was 1968 and that was the last time anybody had seen him and then one uncle developed diabetes and quit drinking and you know and I got to find out about my mother who had a problem with drugs and alcohol her entire life and pills and you know the reason why this is important is because you know, everybody at work's following the story. They want to know, you know, about Dave, find his family, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I get there and I say, and guess what? My natural, I said, everybody in my family's an alcoholic. And they go, oh, I'm so sorry. And I said, no, it's great. <laughs> I said, let me tell you, because it all makes sense now. I mean, these people, they drank exactly like I did. That was, a, that was amazing. By the time, when you start... In this family, you started drinking when you were a teenager, and by the time you were in your mid to late 20s, you were either sober or dead. You know? And, uh, you know, it made sense. It made sense. And, 
you know, uh, my father, when I got sober in August of 1980, I went and made amends to my father, you know, on my first uh, ninth step. Because I had really, I had hurt this man unbelievably, and I knew that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the pain, you know, an alcoholic son causes a father. You know, he had the dreams and the hopes and, you know. And, you know, when I started talking to my dad, he just, he just, he just stopped me. He wouldn't let me make my amend. You know, uh, he just said, I'm glad you're not drinking. I'm glad you're not drinking. He was getting real emotional. He said, he said I'm just glad you're not drinking. And I said, I said, well, and I had all this stuff to say, and I had to honor his request. He didn't want to hear anymore because it was, it was painful to him. So I said, well, okay. You know, he knew I was there, and he knew the intent, and, you know, he didn't want to hear anymore, so that was the end of it. So I thought I'd made my amends to my father. Now, I work the program, and I'm active in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm making my amends. I'm paying my money back. I'm going to meetings. I'm chairing meetings. I've got a sponsor. I sponsor people. I'm doing everything. My life is getting better like they say it will. And then it's about I'm about seven years into sobriety, and it's Thanksgiving, and I'm at my family's house, and it's uh, a typical Thanksgiving dinner, and that is my father sits at the head of the table, and nobody talks to him, and he talks to nobody. And uh, the routine is, the only thing he'll say is, pass this, pass that. We talk amongst each other, but nobody talks to him. He gets up, he goes, and he turns on the cowboy game. You can come in the room as long as you don't talk to him or stand in front of the TV. Okay, and that's it. And we've been doing that as long as I can remember. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at him, and it's like, my dad and I aren't close. There's still, there's still something there. There's something wrong. And, uh, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, they taught me a couple of things, and one of them is I'm supposed to look at myself when things aren't right. It's not the other person's fault. I'm supposed to look at myself. And I had a, I had a little intuitive insight that day. And, uh, you know, I get these things, and I think they're from God sometimes. Well, I, I know they're from God. But the thing is, if I don't act on them, then the next day it's like it was just a thought, and then a week later it probably never happened. But that day I asked myself the question, why am I not getting along with my dad? I get along better with my ex-wife than I do with my father. And I sat there and I looked at him, and I went over my behavior, my conduct, and I said, well, I've made my amends to my dad. And I said, what's wrong? And then I realized, and I knew, it all came to me in a flash, and the reason why I wasn't getting along with my father was because I was waiting for my father to come make his amends to me. And that's why we weren't getting along. And I knew that. And then I knew something that a lady in Al-Anon had said to me once. She said, if things are going to change, let it begin with me. And by this point, my father went in and he turned on the cowboy game. And I went into the living room and I stood there in front of the chair. And uh, I said, Dad, stand up. And I don't ever want to forget what my father did. Okay, what he did was he raised his hands over his head like this, like I was going to hit him. And he said, why? And I said, come on, Dad, just stand up. And, he, and then he grabbed the chair like this, and he was <clears throat> he was really scared. He said, why? <clears throat> and I said, because I want to give you a hug and tell you I love you. My father shot up out of that chair. We hugged each other, and we started crying. <clears throat> it was so overwhelmingly emotional, we had to stop. Um, you know, when I came into the program, people used to say, I'd hear people talk about <clears throat> what alcoholics had done for them, what Alcoholics Anonymous had done. 
I'd hear about families reunited. I'd hear about people that got along, you know, parents and, and kids and families reunited. And I used to think, yeah, but that's not going to happen for me. That's not going to happen. Because, you know, right at the end, my father and I were down to fist fighting, you know. And uh, I actually heard him once in a real bad fight. And I didn't know it till I'd been sober for a long time because he never told me. You know, but that's what that's where we'd gotten to was fist fighting. And, uh, you know, that day things began to change. Now, I have to tell you this. That one event right there was not enough. That wasn't enough, see, because I have to back that up with consistent action. So I had to look at my life and I had to say, why? You know, what, why, what was he supposed to make amends about? And I looked at it and I said, you know, the one thing that I was really mad about was he never took me fishing when I was a kid. Man, I lived to fish. I loved to fish. That's all I wanted to do. And he took me about three times that I can remember. So what I did was I called him up and I said, Dad, I've hired a guy to take Soma. Let's go fishing. So I took him fishing. And we got out there, and it was easier for each one of us to talk to the guy than it was to talk to him, you know. But we, we made a start, okay? A couple of months later, he called me on the phone, and he said, Hey, I've hired a guide. My treat. Let's go. So my father and I started working, and we started trying to build a relationship. Not on my terms, but I tried to build it. You know, I tried to find out on his terms. You know, uh, I said, What does my dad like to do? I didn't know anything about the guy, you know. And uh, he... Uh, what are his interests? My father lives for gardening. That's his thing. You know, he takes pride in having the first tomatoes every summer. You know, he's like, he like calls people, you know, it's like, I've got tomatoes, do you? You know, and he's like, <laughs> you know, he, he starts them in the greenhouse in these little coffee cans, you know, and he gets them in the ground. Okay, I could care less about that, okay? But I thought, well, and I called him on the phone and I said, Dad, I'm thinking about putting a garden in this year. Could you help me? Man, he was over at my house in a heartbeat. He had he had buckets of secret compost, okay? He's out there in the backyard and we're digging, you know, and he's telling me all about this stuff, showing me how to put them in the ground. My father and I are beginning to build a relationship at this point, okay? It's working. It's slowly working. Uh, and then I came home one day, and there was a message from the machine. that says, go to your back porch. And I went out on my back porch, and there was a loose-leaf uh, notebook out there. And it was full of laminated pages that had newspaper clippings and pamphlets in it. And it said, David's book on the front. And I opened it up, and my father had been making a scrapbook for me on newspaper articles about raising tomatoes. This is so far from where it used to be. And I didn't do it. This is the power of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is one hell of a powerful program. I would have said that this was impossible. Today, my father is my best friend. If he doesn't hear from me, every week, we call each other. We meet for lunch about every three weeks. We laugh, we joke, we have a good time. We're getting to know each other. He's 75 years old. He's my best friend. Let me tell you all about one other thing real quick. I'm not really, I don't, I don't like to talk about this. My sponsor tells me I need to. So until he tells me to quit, I'm going to keep telling you all about it. Uh, I was single and sober for nine years. And we could talk for a long time about that right there. I mean, that's a whole adventure in itself. <clears throat> but I met this lady. 
And what impressed me about her when I had nine years of sobriety was that she was a low-bottom drunk. Low-bottom drunks, you know, they know where the bottom is, you know. They know what they're pushing off against. There was no wishy-washy, you know, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. She knew she was because what really cemented it for me was when I heard her talking about buying a car. When you buy a used car, you always look at the back seat because you know you're going to have to live in it. I said, this lady's a drunk. And... uh so we started hanging around together, and uh, we got we were engaged. We got married. Uh, we were engaged for a year, and we got married. And she had a, a daughter that was out running the streets crazy, and I 12-stepped her, and she got sober and moved back in and started going to college. And so we had the happy AA household. You know, I mean, you know, everybody's doing, you know, at birthday one year I introduced her, she introduced me, you know, and the daughter introduced, you know, and it was just, everything was great. The first year was great. And then in the second year of our marriage, uh, things started to get kind of uh, rocky. Her sponsor moved away. She didn't get a new one. She no longer had any active sponsorees. Uh, when we had gotten married, she had a meeting down at the Dallas County Jail. That, uh, we had to plan our whole wedding around this jail meeting, you know, because uh, she would not miss that meeting to save her life, and she stopped going to that. Um, and and her mood, you know, her her just, you know, it's like she wasn't going to meetings and she started resenting me going to meetings, okay? And she'd do the deal where she'd say, well, let's go together. But then, you know, my sponsor told me that I need to be on time to meetings, you know, none of this dragging in late. You need, and on time is 30 minutes before the meeting starts, okay? You know, so you can stand there and greet the newcomer and shake hands and be a part of it and make coffee. So it's time to leave and she's she's not ready to go. So I've got to go ahead and go without her. And I know that she's not going to come on her own, and I'm going to get the fight when I get home, and, you know, we're going to argue about it. And I'm on the phone with my sponsor, and I say, what do I do? And he says, nothing. You keep doing what you're doing, you know. He says, are you sponsoring people? Yes, you know. Well, you just keep doing that. Just keep doing it. You know, what? this is none of your business. This is her program, and this is none of your business. And uh, so things started, they just started to deteriorate, you know, and it, but, you know, I believe in the power of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I believe in this program. And so I thought that our problems were temporary. You know, I, I thought, you know, well, you know, this, she's having a rough time. You know, we have rough times in sobriety, but, you know, she'll come through it. And then things got stranger and stranger and stranger. And uh, and then I found out that she was having an affair with one of my sponsorees. And all hell broke loose. Uh, I, uh, and people started getting drunk. It was one of those things where everybody knew about it, but me, I was the last to figure it out. And, uh, you know, I knew that we were and, uh, she moved out, and I talked to her on the phone. But, you know, I would not wish getting drunk on my worst enemy on the face of the earth. If you're an alcoholic, you know, don't drink. And I called her on the phone because she completely quit going to meetings. And I called her on the phone and I said, look, I said, I said, we can work through all this. I said, we're going to get divorced, but, you know, we can all make it. I said, nobody has to get drunk. The guy doesn't have to get drunk. She doesn't have to get drunk. I don't have to get drunk. Nobody has to get drunk. I really believe that. I believe that nobody had to. Now, let me tell you what I was like at this time because... Uh, I could see what was going to happen. I could see what was coming. Uh, uh, we had two houses. We had a lake house. We had new vehicles. And 
I could see I was probably going to have to file bankruptcy because the whole thing was about to fall apart. And that was a bitter pill to swallow in sobriety. You know, after having come in, made my amends, got my credit reestablished, I saw that it was all about to go away. And, uh, but she couldn't stay sober. And within two weeks of going back out, she lost her job. Uh, a couple weeks after that, she lost the little place she was living in. And a couple weeks after that, she was uh, just one step away from being homeless, and she was a ward of the, uh, ward of the state. Now, right before all this hit, a couple of weekends before, all these crazy guys, I mean, some of the sickest people I've ever seen in Alcoholics Anonymous came up and asked me to sponsor them. <laughs> I'd see him come in, I'd see this guy come to me, I'd go, oh, no. <laughs> now, my sponsor told me that I do not have the right to say no to Alcoholics Anonymous. It doesn't matter how many people I'm sponsoring. He says, it's not about you. He said, you know, you don't know what God has in store. If you're supposed to sponsor that many people, God's going to show you how. You just say yes. Your job is to say yes. And so I called him on the phone, and I said, you know, I think something bad's about to happen to me. And he said, why? And I said, because God's putting all these guys in my life to keep me busy because something bad's about to happen. And he said, you don't know that. But it turned out to be true. That's exactly what happened. And these guys saved my life, and the program saved my life. I was not in the best of mental health at this time. Uh, I went into I got depressed. I mean, where I work, uh, they saw me walking around with my mouth hanging open, and they said, you know, we'd really prefer that you not drive one of our company trucks. And uh, so I got sent home uh, for depression, you know, and uh, I was uh, given, I was put on disability for 45 days. And, uh, you know, this was, this was hard to take at 10, 10 plus years of sobriety. You know, this was hard to take. I'm, but I'll tell you what I did. I went to lots of meetings. And, you know, Sundays were really hard for some reason. Sundays were difficult. I heard a lot of missteps from these guys on Sundays. You know, and my sponsor, I would call him on the phone. And I got to talk about myself for two minutes. And then I was no longer allowed to talk about myself. And he told me to talk about the guys I sponsored. They started asking me questions about it. So how are they doing? Are they doing this? Have you got them doing this? Are they doing that? And there were quite a few of them at this time, and they were keeping me real busy. And I look back on that. You know, and when all this stuff hit, I looked at that, and there were a couple other things that ran concurrent with this. Let me tell you what they were. My first wife sued me for $10,000 two weeks after I found out about my affair, you know, as sort of a you know bonus before my daughter turned 18 on child support. <laughs> You know, I already had a, I called it my I'm being sued briefcase, you know. Uh, I was already going to the attorney's office for the divorce, so I just threw this other, you know, stuff in there and went up there and I showed him and he says, oh, she'll get it. And I said, I don't have $10,000 as well. They're going to get it from you. And then my brother, who was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, his uh, liver had gone into failure in sobriety. It was five years of sobriety. And uh, he was on the uh, transplant ward at Baylor uh, waiting for it. Uh, a new liver, but they didn't want to give him one because he was an alcoholic. And uh, my sister-in-law had a breakdown, and she was put in uh, a mental institution for a period of time. And then my kids, my nieces, were um, my parents were taking them. And so my parents told me, they said, we can't raise these two little girls. And so it looked like I was going to have to raise my brother's kids, and uh, I was being sued for all this money, and I was going to lose everything I had. This all happened in a 30-day period. Just... Boom. Here's what I found out. In Bill's story, there's a, there's a paragraph. And it says, if an alcoholic fails to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life, and it tells you how, 
through work and self-sacrifice for others. He cannot survive the certain trials and low spots which lay ahead. Certain trials and low spots which lay ahead. Those guys saved my life. You know, I'm glad that when I called my sponsor on the phone that he did not say, Dave, I want you to go home and get in touch with your feelings. Because <laughs> I'll tell you what my feelings were. I wanted to get a high-powered rifle and go to the top of the water tower. Okay? And I wanted to go out in a blaze of glory and take a bunch of people with me. I was crazy. I was nuts. Okay? I, I was not thinking well. Okay? And, uh, but the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and this program of action... And this idea of, you know, I do for others, you know, and that carries me through the difficult times. And, you know, I look back on that, and I thought when all this hit, I had one of my last rational thoughts I had before I fell apart was, I'm going to be messed up for years. I said, man, this is going to, I'm going to be one of, I'm going to be a mess for a long, long time. And I came through that in what I consider a relatively very short period of time. And I was standing on the other side of it. And I looked back, and I realized that I needed every meeting, every person I ever sponsored, every prayer I ever said, everything I'd ever done to just barely squeak by, that I couldn't have hedged on anything. You know, uh, we're talking, Sherry and I were talking last night about this thing. It's like, well, I'm not going to a meeting tonight. I'm going to stay home and be good to me. You know, it's like, ah! You know, the way I'm good to me is I get drunk. You know, that's how I'm good to me. You know, I drink alcohol. This is a powerful program. You know, I made it through that. You know, uh, one last little thing. Uh, when I got sober, my best friend was a guy named Ray Campanese, Rafael Antonio Campanese. He was he sobered up in Chicago in Cicero, and he moved to Dallas. And he had two years when I met him, and he was this outgoing Italian guy, and he was you know, a lot of fun, and I started hanging around with him, and he was my best friend. We went everywhere together. We we drove from Dallas to Chicago at midnight one night to go to some conference he told me about, you know, and we, we just, we ran around together. We were two single guys in AA, and we were having a blast. We were inseparable. Everybody knew, Dave and Ray, you know, we went everywhere, and uh, I, I thought we would be together always. I thought we'd be best friends forever. Um, we were joking that when we got old, if we weren't married, we were going to have an AA nursing home and that we would have adjoining rooms, you know, and we'd chase the cute nurses in our wheelchairs. You know, we just thought we'd be for, together forever. But what happened was Ray quit doing the deal, you know. At about five years, Ray, Ray got married, okay, and he thought, you know, he'd served his time. I'm sorry, it was longer than that. It was like seven or eight years. He served his time. You know, he'd chaired the meetings. He'd gone to the conferences. He'd sponsored the people. He'd answered the phones. It was time for somebody else to do that, and it was time for him to move on to some kind of second stage of sobriety, you know, where you got to enjoy the fruits, and you got to sit back, and, you you know, he had investments now, you know, and he, he got promotions at work, and he had new cars, and now all of a sudden the kids are coming, and he's busy, and he doesn't have time for it anymore. And what Ray couldn't see was that he was losing everything that he had on the inside. And that first marriage fell apart, and Ray came back around again. But Ray was so negative, it was harder than hell to be around him. It was just, you know, and he wouldn't come into meetings. He'd come up after the meeting to see where we were going to eat. You know, and he'd go eat with us, but he wouldn't come for the meeting. And uh, I talked to my sponsor about it, you know, and, uh, you know, he said, well, talk to the guy. You know, because it was so difficult to be around him. He was so negative. And I talked to Ray, and Ray didn't understand. I said, Ray, I can't keep hanging around you, man. You, you don't have a program. You're, you're just negative, you know. It's, it's, it, and, uh, 
And I was like the last friend he had, and he wouldn't change. And so what he did was he went and fixed himself and got married again to somebody else, you know, and started going to another group. But, but he wasn't really doing anything. And I guess the miracle is, is that it took as long as it did. You know, at 17 years of sobriety, Ray went back out. You know, that second marriage had failed. And he was bitter and he was resentful at wife number one and wife number two. And he was bitter and resentful at his employer because that promotion had been taken away. And Ray tried to get sober for a solid year. You know, and I started a new little group over there in a church down the street. And I called him up. He called me on the phone. And, and I was devastated when he went back out. But I, it shouldn't have been because, you know, it was bound to happen. And, uh, you know, I told him, I said, why don't you come back? You know, it works, right? It'd be like the old days. Why don't you come back? Come over to this group, you know? You know, won't be any nonsense. Won't be just straightforward AA. Why don't you come back? And he said, well, maybe I will, you know? The night, one night, he went to a, a newcomer's meeting, and they told me he came in late. Uh, they said he was probably on something because his speech was slurred. He came in late. When he, when he shared, he said, y'all don't understand. You just don't understand. And he got up and he left before the meeting was over. We know he went to a bar and he had two beers. And he went home and he turned on the TV. And another friend that's known him as long as I have was sitting in her house and all of a sudden she just knew something was wrong and she got in her car and went over and his front door was open and he was sitting there with his feet up on the couch with his eyes wide open watching TV, Stone Cold Dead. He was 43 years old. It was not a suicide. He'd just taken some pills and some beer and it hadn't worked out quite right in the combination and he'd died. And he left behind three little kids. And you know, the reason why I mention Ray is because in life, Ray wasn't a good example of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, he was not a good example of 17 years of sobriety. But in death, you know, I was, my sponsor told me, he says, there's two kinds of people in Alcoholics Anonymous, good examples and bad examples. Make up your mind which one you want to be like. Make up your mind. So in death, you know, at least for a while, I want Ray to be an example of what doesn't work. You know, I believe in the power of this program. You know, the disease is absolutely unbelievable. I have seen people come in, get their life handed back to them, get their respect, get the, get the love of their family, their kids, get, get their standing in the community restored, and then they hand it all back and they go back out and they lose it again. This disease is unbelievable. It destroys people that don't even have it. But the good news is this, and that is the program is more powerful than the disease. The program works. You know, it works really well. Somebody says, how does it work? It works real good. It works just fine. I want to thank you all for having me here. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you all.